Welcome to In the Studio, our weekly one-hour look at the world of music. Bob Reed here. Hiya, Blair Packham. I'm over here. <laughs> <laughs> you distinctly did not put my name on the radio twice. Exactly. You've learned, you've learned not to kick at that football, have Hi, you, Charlie Blair Packham. Brown? <laughs> there, now I've had my name said All twice. All right, fine. Uh, Be that way. <laughs> Well, it's good to have you here, and uh, good to be doing the show, as always. Lots of uh, fun stuff from the music world on the docket tonight, including the still, to me, astonishing growth in the world of vinyl. Yeah. It's still hot. It's it's, it's still hot, and it's growing. It's There's no question that it's growing. I mean, not not just statistically, but anecdotally. You, can, you talk to people, and they're crazy for vinyl. The demand for vinyl continues to the point where Burlington, Ontario, is poised to become the home of what many are saying will be the number two vinyl pressing plant in all of North America. When Jerry McGee, former frontman of Brighton Rock, for all you 80s fans out there, yeah. uh, he's been uh, in different facets of the music business, and he's put together a joint venture to uh, put this state-of-the-art brand-new vinyl pressing plant in operation. They're going to fire up the machines really soon. So he's going to join us, actually, uh, on the line from overseas. He's traveling on business related to all of this and give us an update on that. So that'll be fun. We'll look forward to that. We're going to start off with some brand-new music from a very talented friend of ours. guest this week is uh, a real friend of ours around these parts, and we're very pleased to welcome her back into the studio. Usually when she comes to see us, she's in the company of Cindy Dwar, and the two of them together are the country-influenced singer-songwriter duo Scarlett Jane, but Andrea Ramelo is here with us all by her lonesome this time with a brand new solo recording, one that really lays her heart bare in an interesting and intimate way. The album's called Nuda. Andrea Ramelo, good to have you back. Oh, friends, good to be back. We've been catching up a lot <laughs> off air. Yes, we have. We've been we've been wasting this poor guy behind the glass walls time. <laughs> well, Mark is he's a patient fellow, so I think he's we're taking a good shape. Thank yeah. you, Mark. Thank you. We appreciate it. Blair and I both really, really enjoyed the record. Nuda is the name of it, and it's uh, it, there are naturally hints of you know knowing your Scarlet Jane work. It's like yeah, that sounds a bit like it, but it's but it's different, mm -hmm. and it's uh, it, it's very raw, less rootsy. Definitely less less rootsy. I think even even before Scarlet Jane, there there were those two albums we won't mention now because you know you look back and you're like wow that was me then and this well, is me now and I'm such days. a different yeah I'm such <laughs> right. a different human being, but. Uh, 
definitely. I, I, I picked up a baritone guitar through a really dark period in my life, and it kind of became my sidekick. And um, writing on, on that instrument sort of led me down a different road. And um, definitely processing life as I was going through it at that time and, you know, um, trying to survive it led me down down that, that specific road. And what came to be was this um, this double production. So, yeah, definitely less rootsy. I, I think I tapped more into my, my uh, 90s self, you know, and, and all those sort of PJ Harvey and Alanis and all those, those women that was empowering females that got me through certain times that felt like, you know, those, those are the times I couldn't get through and, and they helped me through that. So I think, you know, or unconsciously rather, that was part of the process. And similar to your first solo album, mm -hmm. you turned to the guitar to get you through uh, a, a tough time. Mm -hmm. And an album came from it. You did your research, mister. I mean, I know we've been friends for a while, but uh, the first solo album, actually, I, I started music because my mom was suffering from breast cancer. And I really, I mean, I, I had sung. I used to be a karaoke host. I was singing in a cover band at the Orbit Room, but I'd never really crafted my own songs until I was 23 years old and my mom was um, going through her chemotherapy and radiation treatments for stage three breast cancer. My dad had an old guitar in the basement. I picked it up, taught myself a couple chords and just started writing more, more so just for therapeutic purposes. And I think now looking back, I know that that's what I really use music for. And also to connect with people because all of us in this universe have the two things in common, which are love and pain. We all experience and, yep. and feel love, and we all experience and feel pain. And so if we can make connections with one another in hopes of helping each other through those moments, you know, that's what really what, what I turn to music and art for anyways. So, you know, that I mean, that is my hope underneath all of this, underneath, you know, this sort of necessity to express and to purge and to exercise these crazy little demons that were, you know, um, keeping me up at night for two <laughs> months. You know, there's that. That's the personal journey. And then there's the public journey. And that journey is to make sure that we are, as artists, doing our job, you know, making people feel, making people think. Making that connection. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Or it else it's, ma you know, can you say masturbation on air? <laughs> I, I believe you, you can. Yeah. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes songwriters are afraid of being too personal. Uh, lots of songwriters are not at all, of course. But but then they they you know their songs are so personal you don't know what they're about. Mm -hmm. Your songs it's it's pretty plain you know that they're about pain and they're about heartache. Uh, not not all of her songs, by the way, folks. Um, <laughs> but the ones on this record are are focused in that way. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people feel that if they if they sing about something really personal, that other people won't connect with it. But you know, often the most the very most specific things you can talk about end up being universal. Yes, yeah. and and also the the album, you know, I mean, people have been writing about love from the moment people began writing about yes. anything, right? Yeah. But you know, this journey was also, you know, it, it brings up existential sort of questions like who, I mean, who am I personally? But who are we when when we don't have someone loving us? Who are we on our own by ourselves? Who are we without this facade that's sort of like out there in social media like who are we naked and alone and in in you know in the gutter i started to really get to know that part of me and it was it was hard and painful and it was really scary but it was rejuvenating and you know it felt like kind of like this metamorphosis like i needed to be right down there and kick myself over and over again and and it was a process and now looking back i am so grateful this album taught me more about myself this process 
and making this album and involving the people that I did it taught me more about life and about identity and about ego than I have ever learned before with any other lesson in my life. So I'm very grateful for that. Andrea Ramelow's in the studio with us now. If I just heard what you just said and had not heard the record, I would think, boy, this is probably a pretty downer kind of experience <laughs> to sit and listen to. But it's, but it's not. No. It's not at all. I mean, <laughs> musically, it, uh, it, it, it thrums along. It's got, a, it's got a real, almost a hypnotic kind of vibe through a lot of the songs. Yeah, there's too. a very vibey sort of thing yeah. that runs through a lot of the songs. Uh, almost uh, a raga kind of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's hypnotic, that's a good word. Beyond the solo renditions, that's all Michael Timmons, I think he's a genius with sound and, you know, what he did with, I mean, there are, he would play back certain uh, songs for me and I was like, oh yeah, that reminds me of this from the Cowboy Junkies album a little bit and, and of course, you know, this is, this is him and this is where he's from, so he infused his own colors on it and he's a, He's a mastermind with mixing, and that's his thing. He allows the artist to just be the artist, yeah. and he is attracted to the darkness, just like I am, you know. But l like you said, it's not—it's not a downer album. There are there are deep dark songs, yeah. but you can feel that that experience evolved and and blossomed into something that was a, more of a survival tale. You can feel that in the songs. It's not like, you know, oh Andrea Ramelow, she's rest in peace. <laughs> like she she's. You know, she's no longer here with us, <laughs> but she left this album behind. <laughs> yeah, to depress us all. Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely not that, so <laughs> I hope not anyways. Here's a question that's going to sound dumb, I think. How, no if question I, is dumb, Blair. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. That's what I, that's tell what I keep students. telling Bob. Yeah. <laughs> I, I often tell my students not to let the facts get in the way of a good song or mm -hmm. a good story. So how? I'm just curious how factually correct are These songs are clearly autobiographical, right? Oh, but yeah. Did you paint... Uh, you know, do you add it, put in any details that aren't in order to fool the listener, maybe, and, and like, or did you want someone listening to go, okay, oh, I remember that weekend when she was talking about feeling that that crappy or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Or did you deliberately obscure anything? No, there was no deliberate obscurities added. But of course, when you when you write and when you create, you know there's this like almost like this open like this palette and you have these emotions in this story that you want to share yeah and then you get to fine-tune and craft the song and communicate it the way that you choose to so you know there could be imaginary elements in the song yeah. you know I, I'm not I'm trying to think of, of, of all the lines <laughs> in the in the song, you know. Um, I mean, not that I'm going to run down a checklist and ask you later. Or no, I mean, it definitely, oh. I definitely, I, I lived through every single one of those songs, whether I was an observer or whether I was um, a character in that story, or whether I was a character dreaming about that story before it happened, or maybe it didn't really fully happen that way, but something like it happened. Yeah. You know, it's. I mean, it's very complicated stuff. Songwriting, isn't it? <laughs> Andrea Ramelow is with us, and we're talking about her brand new release. It's called Nuda. We'll take a quick break here and carry this on when In the Studio returns right after this. She turns into darkness in winter and finds her colors, flesh of her skin. Bruised purple and emerald, black soot and tarnish. She saves her slow dance for sin. Her heart always 
Welcome back to In the Studio. Bob Reed and Blair Packham with you. Andrea Ramelow is our guest, and her brand new album, Nuda, is out now. Uh, boy, we haven't mentioned the release concert is coming up February the 1st at the Lula Lounge here in Toronto. Go to andrearamelow.com for all of the details on it. Another thing we haven't mentioned, although you touched on it in our first segment, Andrea, was the double production, as you called it, because the album is called Nuda. Mm -hmm. It's 10 tracks, right? Yep. And then there's a companion disc, all the same songs, but completely stripped down solo. You, your voice, and the guitar. Why? Why? That's a good question. I think it just happened organically because this album, I didn't have a plan really to do another solo album for a while. You know, we were really busy with Scarlett Jane, touring incessantly for the last five years, focusing on that. And then this pivotal moment, this personal and pivotal moment happened in my life where it just lent itself to me writing a bunch of songs because I needed to. And in that process, Faye Blay, who is the producer and engineer, um, and also fellow musician and dear, dear friend, she's sort of a renaissance woman, she does everything and she does it well, she was really excited about some of these new songs. She took me in. We recorded them very bare bones. And again, I had fallen in love with this baritone guitar who became my replacement boyfriend and my therapist and my best friend and everything I could ever ask for. And he didn't even really talk unless I played him. So it was great. <laughs> and, um, you know, she recorded these songs and it was so painful. That was, you know, that was sort of in the brink of it all. That, that, that was in, in the depth of despair when we started doing this. So for me, that was the necessary part of the process. From there, we had these almost we call them demos at the time, which which really, you know, in and of themselves, they exist as, as nice little pieces. And it's just me and a baritone guitar, me and my acoustic. And, uh, you know, I shared them with Michael Timmons. And he, he loved them, and he was right on board. And uh, I thought that I wanted to give up control because this was a whole, the, like, part of the whole existential crisis of giving up control and giving my stories, my words, my life to somebody else to take care of, to do what they would with it. Right, because at the end of the day, we can't control anything. We are always changing. Everything's always changing around us. So Michael took them, and he hired some of the best guys who I loved working with, and I'd, I'd worked with many of them before. Um, sort of his go-to guys, and you know, we had Josh Van Laysen from the Skydiggers on bass, Ray Ferrugia from Junkhouse on drums, Aaron Goldstein, who plays often with Dan Romano, who's an incredible multi-instrumentalist. He played a bunch of the leads. Michael himself, Jason Snyderman on all the synths and keys, incredible guy incredible keyboard collection and guitar collection also. Yeah. And then Andy Mays, Matt Epp, oh, and Faye Blay. She came in and she did background vocals on the two songs we co-wrote together. Now looking back, in the, it was important to do this because da sola in Italian means alone, on my own, by myself. And nuda means naked. The whole concept came from nuda. But da sola, I wanted to be alone without anybody helping me you know, playing my own songs by myself as, as much as I would crack and maybe show my, my bruises and my, you know, imperfections. I wanted the world to see that. I was ready to show everybody who has been following my music career, this is, this is just me here. Right. Just to be clear, though, the, the, you, you didn't give the uh, Faye Blay produced tracks to Michael and then he overdubbed to them. No, no, no. no you did fresh sessions. Yeah, like sound, some of them are, are different sounds, arrangements, yes. different keys. You yeah. know, we, we really played around with them. But yeah. He had the core of them all. How involved were you in that process, in, in taking the, the solo songs, if you will, and, and making the, the album version, the produced 
album version, the Nuda version, mm -hmm. with Michael? Because you said you handed it over. How much control did you go over? How much involvement did you have in it? Well, this is the thing, you know. <laughs> Michael is, is really an artist's producer, and he just wants you to feel comfortable. He wants you to add your, your zest to the project, and he's curious to hear what you want to do with it. He, d he doesn't just boss people around. You must play this line. He's, not, he's one of those brilliant, almost like a, the brilliant film directors that just hire the actors they know will do the great job and let them play. And so that's what he does with the, the musicians he brings in, and that's what he did with me. However, you know, he had some very specific ideas. But where Michael's expertise really comes into play is the mixing process. So he gets all this great stuff, and he has you know, them on the chopping block, and then he takes them and cuts them and pastes them, and and he brings instruments in and out, and he's vibey. You can hear a wash and sort of like this ethereal sound behind each one of the tunes, and they're all different. They're all unique. And uh, so, yes, he was definitely curious about what he wanted to know what I, I, I felt like hearing. He wanted to know how I felt like playing, you know, and he wanted me to play my baritone guitar with the boys. So that was nice, too, because it was like, oh, we're, we're in a band, and it was, it's very much a band album, like the, the Nuda album. So now I'm going to be kicking myself when I can't afford to bring all these guys on the road. Well, I was going <laughs> to say, yeah, I mean, w uh, uh, when you go out on the road, because you're, you're touring quite soon, that'll be solo. I'll be touring solo and um, also hitting the road after the CD release at Lula, going out to the West Coast with Mad App. We're doing a double bill. But yeah, I'm playing all the songs solo. Somebody actually just crafted me out of this. Um, it's called Tiger Wood. It's a Mexican wood and maple. This amazing tap board, because you guys know I was a tap dancer, I think. I did. I, mm, yes. Vaguely. Okay, yes, this vaguely is one of my I funny remember. little quirks. So yeah. I'm a tap dancer. And, uh, you know, all these musicians these days, they're using that stomp box yeah. to create a drum for them. Yep. It's like, hey, leave the drummer at home there. Porch board. Yeah, they yeah. cost too much money. They have big gear. Let's use the porch board. Somebody made me a two sided tap board that I could actually tap on. And one is hollow and one is, you know, oh. with a contact. And so wow. it's, yeah, it, it actually sounds like a, at least a two, if not three piece drum kit. So it's really cool. I'm just experimenting with pedals and, and sounds right now. But uh, I'll take that with me and my songs and my stories. And, and just away you great go. Joke. Yeah. That sounds great. Wednesday, February 1st is the Toronto date, the official release of Nuda at the Lula Lounge. Is that with a band or you and the board? No, that's definitely with a full band. Okay. And Matt Epp will be opening the show. And uh, we'll have tons of special guests as well, people uh, that you will definitely people know. People we will know? Yeah. Yes. But no one you're at liberty to talk about? Well, you'll have to come to the show to there find yeah. out. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Excellent. Just before we let you go, mm -hmm. we've been talking about Scarlet Jane. Is that still a thing? Or, or are you on hiatus? Yeah, well, a lot of us up? are. It's funny because everyone's like, <gasps> did Scarlet Jane break up? And uh, no, I don't think Scarlet Jane will ever really break up. Cindy and I have been friends for 15 years and we're, you know, we're sort of like sisters, really. But it was a time in our career where, you know, like like I, I said, yeah, like I needed to do that. She and, yeah. and actually, Cindy also recorded a new French album. And right now she's in oh. India doing yoga. She's been there for about four months. So she has not been in Canada. So, it, you know, we, we are on a hiatus, let's say. We, yeah. we already booked a show this summer. We'll do a couple festival shows. And if people want us, they can have us. Uh, that's good news. Yeah. That's good. Good yeah. news. We're yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah. Andrea Ramelow's solo album is called Nuda. Again, February 1st at the Lula Lounge here in Toronto. And watch out for dates all over the place. AndreaRamelow.com. Lovely to see you. Yeah, lovely to see you guys. Thank you. We'll take a break. Lots more ahead in the studio returns after this. So if you love me, let me go And I'll be by your side I will always stay true But if you don't let me go 
Welcome back to In the Studio. Bob Reed and Blair Pack, I'm with you. And that is music from one of the participants who are part of an excellent lineup for the latest in the Bluebird North series of concerts. This is a singer-songwriter in the round night that happens at the beautiful Royal Conservatory of Music here on Bloor Street in Toronto. And the charming host and programmer for the festivities, producer... Yes. ...is Blair I, Packham. Well, yes, and here I am, here sitting right beside you. <laughs> um, well, these are always great nights. Yeah. And this is... Uh, is this the first of the, of the new season? Obviously the first of 2017. It's the first of 2017. We had one in November that was pretty excellent. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah, too, and yeah. Then we've got another one in May, May 6th. Uh, they're always on a Saturday night, yeah. and they're always spread out uh, too far apart for my taste. But, uh, yeah, January 28th. We'll Saturday see. night? Yeah, it's going to be an excellent lineup. And um, who is the lineup? Well, unusually for us, usually there are three songwriters plus me and uh, that uh, we're not deviating too much from that but the uh, the difference is we have a duo uh, who are performing they're performing as one songwriter if you will so Sky Sweetnam who I describe as a recovering pop star um, <laughs> if you google her uh, you know you'll see I mean she's she's had songs covered she's a great songwriter she's had songs covered by famous people like Britney Spears and so forth she's opened for uh, famous people and so forth but that was in a previous life she's sin since gone sort of heavy metal or hard rock I guess and uh, she works in a band called Sumo Psycho with her partner her uh, songwriting partner uh, Matt Drake so they'll be appearing as a as a duo Matt has produced all kinds of uh, hard rock artists he's definitely the hard rocker in the in the duo I guess they both are now yeah uh, so that's that's an interesting thing I, I just love the fact that she used to be this one thing and now she does this other thing which is pretty different she was a guest with us a couple of years ago now. yeah it's, it's been a while and I, I remember that story it was a, a fascinating transition and she's a ton of fun too yeah she's she's definitely fun to have on a stage I think it's gonna be a fun night because of the the sense of humor of the various people Jessica Mitchell who we've also had as a yeah. guest on this show actually they've all been guests on this show uh, Jessica Mi Mitchell is a, a an emerging country star She's not an emerging country artist. She's already becoming a star. She's uh, uh, turning heads everywhere. She's got a fantastic voice, and she's a terrific songwriter, and she's funny as hell. So uh, there's some good energy going on there. Working on Whiskey, if you're a country fan, that's the, the kind of her breakout song that, that's done so well for her. Look it up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she, uh, she's, she, there's a couple of arresting acoustic performances of that on, uh, on uh, the Internet you can find that are, that are fantastic. And then finally, Nephi. That's her stage name. I know her as Sarah. But uh, she was also a guest on this show, and she was part of my songwriting workshop when she was just a kid. I think she was 16. She's terrific. Uh, she's really developed into a fine artist. I, I'm not sure. She's with one of the three remaining major labels. I think it's Universal Music. She's, her career is going really well, and, and she's turning heads everywhere. She's really terrific. So it's, it's going to be a good night. What we do is we, we talk a little bit about our process and we banter and we make fun at each other's expense. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's just great. It's in an intimate uh, room and, uh, I, you know, I love doing it, but I think the audience loves it as well. It's a great time always. Saturday, January 28th, Bluebird North in Toronto here at the Royal Conservatory of Music, hosted by Blair Packham. Hey, speaking of songs and the uh, value behind them, this is kind of fascinating because all the music industry business news that we've been hearing of late is fairly uniformly terrible. Almost right? always, yes. <laughs> the, the entire business has been in decline for 15 years. It looks like maybe it's finally turned a corner, and there's lots of hope that streaming is going to be the way of the future and uh, uh, fix a lot of things. We'll see how that works out. Mm -hmm. But I found this fascinating. The big private equity firms in the U.S. and elsewhere 
are buying up massive stakes in publishing companies and in performing rights agencies. Case in point, the latest one has uh, New York equity firm Blackstone buying a 75% stake in a Nashville-based performing rights organization called CSAC. And they were the number three, I guess, in the U.S. to ASCAP and BMI. Yeah. CSAC was the third one. It's actually, unlike the others, it's a for-profit performing rights organization. So the royalty keepers, basically, yes. the royalty yes. collectors. And they license the public performances of 400,000 songs from 30,000 affiliated songwriters, composers, and music publishers. Among them, Bob Dylan, perhaps you've heard of him, Neil Diamond, Zach Brown, Mumford & Sons, Lady Antebellum, and then an A-list stable of film and TV composers. There's no official price on this deal, but it's uh, speculated, informally so, in the vicinity of $500 million U.S., Follow the money. If, uh, mm -hmm. if the private equity firms are investing that kind of money, uh, then obviously there's money to be made. Uh, certainly they feel that. Now, you know, just to be clear on, on what CSAC is doing differently, not only are they for profit and, and uh, well, SOCAN in Canada isn't for profit. It's a not-for-profit. But um, uh, ASCAP and BMI presumably are, are as well. But, but if you want to license the use of a song, Bob, for yeah. your use in your uh, video, video, and you, but you also want to play that video in a public place where you're charging money. You know, maybe, maybe at, at your theme park, the Bob Reed theme park. Um, <laughs> you, you have to chase down all kinds of rights from all kinds of places. I recently licensed a, a song on behalf of a corporate client for use at one of their uh, uh, functions, and I had to chase down five different publishers, uh, and chase them down meaning with a check in my hand for each of them, and some of them, well, one of them hasn't actually billed me for the money yet. So uh, it's a complicated it's process. It's a complicated to get, process, get the yeah, rights. and they're all dealing with little fragments of songs and so forth. Now, CSAC, as opposed to those other agencies that, that I just mentioned, yeah. They are looking to license all the rights, not just the performing rights. And that's the thing that sets them apart. Right. SOCAN only licenses one right. If I'm a SOCAN member, they license the right of public performance of my song. So if somebody wants to record my song, they got to go talk to somebody else. Right. In order or to if somebody it. wants to put it in a movie, that's a They got to talk to somebody else. Yeah. yeah, it goes on and on. Whereas CSAC hopes to represent all of the rights, and I think that's where the value is. Well, they're not the only one. Uh, there are a couple of other examples of big, deep-pocketed investment uh, funds and, and uh, equity companies buying rights. Cobalt is another one. Um, buying stakes in these uh, repositories of music-related rights. And really what they're saying is, as the demand for use of songs and recorded music in, in different, uh, different streaming sorts, in different social media platforms that allow music embedding, that the, the need to license more and more content continues. And uh, from an investment standpoint, they say the chart of returns doesn't like skyrocket very quickly or dramatically. It's a slow, steady, but long-term return on investment that you can count on because these songs are being licensed all the time and it brings money in the door. So. Just an interesting observation, I thought, that was worth touching on in the business end of the world of music. For sure. Yeah. yeah. We will take a break here, and when we come back, speaking of business and music, the vinyl business is raging away. Jerry McGee, he used to front Brighton Rock, now he's in the vinyl business, joins us after this in the studio.
Welcome back to In the Studio. Bob Reed and Blair Pack, I'm with you, and we shift now to the world of vinyl. And our next guest knows it from both sides. His voice was pressed into the tracks back when he was the lead singer of the 80s rock band Brighton Rock. And today he's the man behind a brand new vinyl pressing plant located in Burlington, Ontario, that is going to come on stream very soon. Jerry McGee, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, guys. The vinyl comeback has been underway for a few years now, of course, but the the challenge of getting precision record pressing up and running isn't the kind of thing you do overnight. So when did you decide to take the plunge and do all the investment and legwork and everything else that, that you've had to to get into the vinyl pressing business? Well, it's been about three and a half years. Uh, what happened is my main company, um, Isotope Music, is, is the largest wholesaler uh, in Canada, an e-commerce company. And we were bringing vinyl in from Australia and the UK, and then we noticed everything we brought in, we sold. Uh, problem was we couldn't get any fill, uh, so we couldn't fill those back orders that were coming in. So my suppliers, which are Sony, Warner, and Universal, came to me and said, you know, we're not getting any of the fill. I mean, the perfect example is when the Led Zeppelin reissues came out, Canada got zero copies of the vinyl. Uh, even though they put in the order, the Americans got more orders than they anticipated, and they said, sorry, we're keeping it. So they said to me, if you open up a plant, we will support you, which I thought was a perfect kind of, uh, you know, crossing over from what I do already with my regular day job. Uh, and I went on this pursuit of trying to find machines. Uh, so I've been through the U.K., I've been to plants in Tokyo, I've been through the U.S., I tried to buy the ones out of Montreal, and nobody would sell me machines, and it was the same problem. There were the old machines that break down, replacement parts are hard to find, and I was just about to give up on it when I found out about a company in Prague called GZ Media, who I knew uh, through Universal was their main supplier of their vinyl. And on their website, they had this advertisement for brand new machines. So I sent my guy who runs my UK division over to Prague, and I said, uh, pitch them on two things. First, see if they'll sell his machines. Uh, and if they won't, ask him if they want to do a joint venture in Canada. And he flew over, and he flew back that night and called me and said, they won't sell us machines. They're the only ones in the world that have been completed. It's patent pending. Uh, but as far as doing a joint venture, how fast can you get to Prague? So I was on a plane the next day where I proceeded to sit down with the chairman of the board, the CEO of the company, and managed to convince them that Canada was a good spot to put a new plant basically as a, as a footstep into the North American market, considering they basically run all of Europe already. So they own the machines and, and all of the, the technology and, and that piece of it, and together yep. you're, you're mounting this, uh, this production facility in Burlington. And we've seen accounts that are projecting it could be the second busiest vinyl operation in all of North America. Yes. Uh, right now we've got 10 presses that are in there. What GZ has done, ours are manual presses, so they're very good for picture discs, color discs, smaller runs. Uh, for the independent labels and bands. Uh, but GZ has already perfected an automated machine. Uh, they've been running them in Prague since, I think, May of last year. Uh, when we put those in in Phase 2, which is our plan, um, it, it should zoom up to be the second largest plant in North America behind United in, uh, in Nashville. That's amazing. Were you ever concerned that this might just be a, the, vinyl, the return of vinyl might be a passing fad, even if it passes over 10 years? You know, it's, it's, it's weird, Blair, because, I mean, in what I do with my regular job, I mean, every day people say to me, people don't buy CDs, nobody buys CDs. We did about 5 million CDs out of my plant in Burlington. Uh, we've gone from a company that turned over 2 million to 20 million. Uh, it's not slowing down. What it is is it's different avenues. People don't go to stores anymore, although I wish they would. 
you know, go to the HMVs of the world and the local record stores. People buy online. And as long as you have the capabilities and the IT uh, forthwith do the online business, CDs are still massive. And it's the same thing with vinyl. And I remember last year I seen, uh, it was in the New York Times, they were stating that 51% of all vinyl was bought by people that were 18 to 31 years of age. So it's not guys like me replenishing their old Led Zeppelin and Queen collections. It's a whole new generation that was never around when vinyl was cool. Uh, and, you know, the turntable sales are increasing. I, I think it's just a whole new format that people really start to dig. It's a bit of a nostalgia. It's a different experience listening to vinyl, like forgetting any question of fidelity at all. It's just a different experience, I find. Bob, Bob gave me an old turntable a couple of weeks ago, and, uh, and I hooked it up to my you know, stereo amplifier. And the, the, the experience of listening to music on a, on a vinyl record is so much more tactile and somehow forces me anyway, and it seems to be true for other people as well, to actually pay attention to the music more. Yeah, you do. I, I mean, I've gone totally the opposite way again. I mean, I think I got three turntables at home. I went and bought a separate power amp the way we used to in the old days. Uh, everything I get that comes in, in, in my office, I grab on vinyl. And when you sit and you listen to it, uh, it's the closest thing that you'll ever get to listening to a, an album when it's being played back in the studio uh, on two-inch tape, you know, in the old days, the way oh. we used to make records when I made them. Yep. That sound, that warmth, uh, you can't get from a CD or a download. And when you put on a piece of vinyl, whether it's Led Zeppelin II or Hotel California by the Eagles, you'll feel that warmth. And that's exactly what the band heard when they sat in there during the mixing process and the creation of the records. Let me ask you about uh, about the, the production aspect of things, because uh, I remember when CDs first came in, and they were pressing CDs using master tapes that had been mastered to make vinyl albums from, and they came off, they, they didn't sound right. They didn't have the proper yep. warmth and depth to them. They were brittle. And, yeah. yeah. Going back now to making vinyl in this day and age, are you able to get vinyl recordings that are mastered specifically for vinyl production, or is that uh, kind of a hurdle as well? That's exactly what they're doing. I mean, it's still the same old cutting machines that you used to have in the 80s. There's very few of them around. Uh, GZ's actually got a big chunk of them. Um, but basically, it's just a file. They send you a WAV file, uh, and then when you cut it into the final uh, master before you make the test pressings, you're able to put it back into that same fidelity. Because remember, it used to be analog to digital, and then everything was digital. Uh, you can get that back because a lot of the stuff that, that we're pressing right now at Precision was never, ever done on uh, on LP before. So there's a lot of stuff that's having to be redone and remastered in order to have it ready for the vinyl format. So if I, as an artist, wanted to get some vinyl pressed, um, I would still go to a, a mastering house uh, or can, are you a one-stop shop? Yeah, you could do that. Or what you could do is you send your file. So you obviously you finish your record, you mix your record. So you're happy with your final mix, and then you send us the file. Uh, they do that in GZ. So what they do is we've got like a whole floor of people that basically sit there, go through the files, watch all the wavelengths on it, and then cut it into what would be a master file. And then from that master file is where they go to make the, uh, the stampers, which are what make the record. Jerry, you've got the, uh, the hydro is in. You've got some of the pressing machines uh, in place. When do you expect to be up and running pressing vinyl in Burlington? Uh, February 1st is going to be the beginning of production, and the first record that we're pressing on the new Canadian plant is a Man Machine poem by the Tragically Hip. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> oh, that's so great. I had seen that was uh, that was your goal, so glad to see that that's, uh, that's coming together. And in terms of your clients, you said the, the major labels, they have a lot of stuff that they want to, uh, they want to release on vinyl. Uh, what about uh, smaller indie labels or, or individual do-it-yourself artists? Are you, you going to cater to all of them? 
Absolutely. Precision is set up exactly to do that. I mean, we can handle a 100-unit run just like we can handle a 100,000-unit run. Uh, and we want to be indie-friendly because those guys, you know, when God forbid something happens like Bowie or Prince dies, everybody's vinyl gets pushed to the back end. Uh, our goal in Burlington is to get to the point where we're doing 8- to 10-week deliveries, whereas most people, like on this trip I'm on right now, on my way to Hong Kong, they're waiting six months. For their vinyl to be pressed. Oh, I didn't realize it was. It I didn't realize it was oh, such a long wait. It's insane. Yeah, the, the turnaround times are insane because of the fact that you know a lot of these machines uh, are old and they break down and it's hard to keep the schedules. And the fact that most plants around the world are running at full capacity. So we set that goal uh, that what Precision wants to offer is an eight to ten week delivery time on your records, which we've been meeting pretty well since we started in Prague. And I mean, we do all the packaging here. Uh, we do all the printing here, so we we basically got a whole, you know, cradle to the grave situation, and that's the stuff that we want to push. But we definitely want the independent business, uh, as well as the you know the, the regular business. One of the things we've talked about last week is uh, doing a Max Webster box set. Oh, fantastic! I got to tell you, this is very exciting stuff. I, I think it's terrific. Before we let you go, I do want to ask you about Brighton Rock. Are, are, are you, yes. you guys do any shows? Uh, we did a 25th anniversary, a 30th anniversary in Hamilton. I think it was the first time we played there in 25 years. We've, we've really done um, most of the European shows. Ah. So we, we, would, we would do the one-off kind of festivals. i got to be honest with you, with my schedule now and everything, I, I'm really the guy that's the holdout uh, on doing it. It's not that we don't get you know, requests to do these kinds of shows. And at this age now, it's, <laughs> it's a lot harder <laughs> to get in the shape and... We refuse to tune down, so we play it the same way we wrote it. Oh. Um, I can get there, but it takes me a lot more work than what it used to when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, I could just step on stage and rip it out. So there probably will be some shows over the year, um, but I think we're getting pretty well close to the end. Wow. Well, I hear you, brother. That's uh, yeah. yeah. That's the reality for us. Jerry McGee, all the best to you with Precision Record Pressing in Burlington. Vinyl is back in a big way, and uh, we wish you nothing but success. Thanks for spending some time with us here. My pleasure, guys. That's it for our time this week. Thank you, Blair Packham. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Mark Tang, for technical production. That is it. We'll do it again next time we gather here in the studio and talk about the world of music. Do take care until then.